God's word proclaimed, and we will afterwards sing in response Psalm 131. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, Romans 8 says that when God completes his work through us in Christ, Jesus became the firstborn among many brothers. And boys and girls, do you have a younger brother or sister? Do you remember what it was like when they were born? Usually, hopefully, When a new brother or sister comes along, we are very excited. Although sometimes it can be annoying because they take up so much of our parents' time and attention. So sometimes we can be a bit resentful of our new sibling. And even adults can feel that same resentment sometimes. Perhaps if your best friend or sometimes even your spouse gets a very close friend. And maybe you then feel less, less exclusive, less special. Well, Jesus, our catechism says, Jesus was the only Son of God from, from eternity. He exclusively received the fatherly love of his Father. But then as a result of Jesus' death on the cross, Romans 8 says, Jesus became the firstborn among many brothers, Jesus suddenly went from being God's only son to one among millions. Was Jesus resentful? What was it like for God to have to share out his love now with his creatures after an eternity of there being only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And when we think of our love and having to include more people in our life, in our groups, We often think of having less time, less love for for other people. If the more people we have, the kind of less love we have to go around. And that's also true because our human love is often selfish. When we receive love from others, we want to keep it for ourselves. And so when we give love, we're often quite exclusive about it. And we we enjoy spending time with, with those who love us in return. But God's love is perfect and eternal and infinite. And God's triune love is overflowing so that he cannot but love. And so is Jesus resentful at us, his younger brothers? The answer is no. It's impossible for God to be that way because of his overflowing love. And so when Jesus speaks about his followers He says, he tells us in John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. God the Father loves Jesus with an overflowing love that he cannot help but, he cannot keep silent about. And so he exclaims from heaven more than once, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is a proud love of a father that our fatherly love or motherly love is just a shadow of. And Jesus says that that love of God for Jesus is the same love that he now shows us, his younger brothers. And so he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. 
And so Jesus has such a great love for us that even though he is our master, as answer 34 explains very clearly, he doesn't hold it over our heads by acting all superior and haughty. He loves us so much that he treats us as his friends. And of course, having said that to us and to his disciples, he then goes on to prove it by dying, by suffering God's eternal wrath on the cross so that we will not perish but live with him forever. And so he says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so today we will see the great love that God has poured out on us when he has made us children of God. And we'll see this first of all by seeing the great love and the uniqueness that God has given to Jesus as God's only begotten son. And then we will see secondly the privileges we receive as God's adopted sons. So we see this afternoon how we are all adopted by God, and we'll see how Christ is God's son, and then how we are God's sons. So firstly, Jesus Christ, God's son. Jesus Christ is God, son of the Father. He is God's only begotten son, the Apostles' Creed tells us. And we get this teaching of Christ as the only begotten son of of the Father, mostly from the Gospel of John. It speaks of Jesus as God's only begotten son multiple times. Chapter 1, verse 18 says this, No one has ever seen God, but God, the only begotten, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Or, chapter 3, verse 16. You maybe have heard this verse before. Boys and girls, maybe you've memorized it for school. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. And these verses, talking about how Jesus is God's Son, have led many people to claim that that Jesus is a second God, a a sort of demi-God. After all, if we are descended from our parents, if we are sons or daughters of our parents, that means we come after them and we are second to them. And so they say if Jesus is begotten of God the Father, he must be a, a second God, less than the Father. Arius, whom the Nicene Creed was written against, taught that Christ was was not eternal, but he was begotten by the Father in time. He was the, the first created being. He received many divine attributes, but he is not the same, of the same substance as God the Father. And you might have had Mormons knocking on your door, perhaps, at some point in your life. And they teach the same, similar sort of idea. They teach that Jesus came as a second God called the Redeemer. And the Nicene Creed was written against all these ideas when it teaches that Jesus was begotten of the Father before all ages and begotten, not made. And what this means is that Jesus is begotten from eternity. He always was, just like the Father always was. And Jesus is the same substance, the exact representation of God the Father. And so Jesus is no less than the Father in respect to his divinity. And the reason why many people try to claim that Jesus is a second God is because Jesus himself seems to speak that way sometimes. Also in, John, in the book of John, he says, The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. And he repeats that idea, by myself I can do nothing. I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. You can see John 5 and John chapter 8. 
But you see, Jesus is speaking this way out of his human nature. And he's speaking about his task on earth when he lived as a mortal man. And so the Athanasian Creed, another of our ancient creeds, puts it this way. It says, Christ is equal to the Father in respect of his divinity, less than the Father in respect of his humanity. And so in in his human nature, he submits himself to his Father's will. He does what the Father tells him to do. But as true God, in his divine nature, Jesus is equal to the Father. And so Romans 8 talks often about Jesus as God's Son. And it says that Jesus as God's son from eternity was sent by God into this sinful world. Romans, close to the beginning of Romans chapter 8, it speaks in verse 3 of how God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And so Jesus, though being from eternity God equal to God, was sent in this world in a true human nature like ours. And so just like we are less than God, as Psalm 8 speaks, how we are a little less than divine or a little less than God, so Jesus Christ is in his human nature less than God. Creatures are less than their creator. But when Jesus talks of himself as little less than God, as less than God, he is also speaking of his task. The triune God from eternity made a plan before the creation of the world to save us. As part of that plan, the Father would send his Son into the world. And Jesus submitted himself to that plan and became a faithful Son when he willingly gave up his glory and his life for us. And Jesus, Romans 8 makes very clear, he did this for us. He was sent into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh, in our human flesh, the exact same flesh that we possess. And he did so, says verse 3, for sin. He had to come to earth in our human nature because we human beings never did what we were supposed to do. We were created a little less than God to be faithful creatures of God, to, to perfectly image God to all the rest of creation. And if Adam and Eve or any of us were perfectly obedient children and doing what God made us to do, we would receive eternal life. But Adam and Eve chose sin, and we ourselves are begotten in, and born in sin and so often choose sin instead of obedience. And so Jesus became the obedient Son of God for us. He perfectly followed His Father's will in everything that He did. He kept God's righteous law in, in every aspect. And he obediently submitted himself to his Father's will, even when that will was death on a cross. And so Romans chapter 4 says, After Jesus, after God sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So sin was condemned in Jesus Christ. All of our sin was given over to Jesus Christ, and he in his flesh, though he himself was not sinful, was punished for our sin. And so our flesh, our sin, was condemned in Christ. And so because Christ died for our sins, we have been washed clean of our sin and become obedient children in Christ. 
And so verse 1, perhaps the greatest verse in the Scriptures says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you, in your sinful human nature, trust fully in Jesus Christ, then your sin is condemned in His flesh and you are washed clean of your sins and there is now no condemnation for you either. You are free from the law of sin and death because of Christ, God's only begotten faithful Son. But we have received even more than forgiveness and righteousness in Christ. We have also been adopted as God's children, and that's our second point. How we are God's sons. Our text begins to talk about our adoption in, in verse 14. And Romans 8, throughout, as we read throughout the first section, it has been contrasting the two ways to live. There is the way of the flesh, or nowadays we probably say the way of the sinful nature. That's the, the natural human way to live. The way that your first sinful reaction to anything is, that's the way of the flesh. That's the way that does not submit to God's law and does not please God, as our text says. And it says, if you live that way, you will die. And then secondly, there's the way of the Spirit. And this is the only way to truly live, the only way to to have life. And it says, if you live by the Holy Spirit, in the way of the Spirit, you will stop sinning. You will be righteous. And you can do this, says verse 14, because you are led by the Spirit. If you are in Christ, if you trust in Christ and you've received forgiveness of your sins and and you've been washed clean, then the Holy Spirit is in you. And the Holy Spirit is working in you so that you can live a new life of obedience to God. And if that is true, says verse 14, if you are led by the Spirit, you are son, a son of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so here, sons, sonship is being contrasted with slavery. Verse 15 makes that clear. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So those two ways to live, there's the way of the flesh and the, and the way of the spirit, the way of death and the way of life. It's also a way of slavery and the way of freedom. If you live according to the flesh, you are in slavery. You are unable to do good. You're unable to please God, even if you wanted to. You're plunging headlong down a path of fear and and misery and condemnation and destruction. And there's no way off. But if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. And... That way leads to the end of fear, the end of slavery, the end of misery, because you are children of God. Now, why does being a child of God mean an end to fear? Verse 15 says, If you are a child of God or a son of God, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And Abba is the Aramaic word for father. So Paul immediately translates it into Greek for his Greek readers. That's why it's, it basically says father, father, but in two different languages. And why does he say Abba? 
Why does he use a, a Jewish word or an Aramaic word for his Greek readers? Well, the only other time that the word Abba is used in the Bible is by Jesus in Mark 14, verse 36. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to God. And this is his most personal, most heart-rendingly urgent prayer that he ever prayed. And he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And so Abba, then, is Jesus' own personal word for God. As God's only begotten Son, at least while Jesus was on earth speaking Aramaic, Abba was the the word that Jesus himself used to address God. And Romans chapter 8 verse 15 says, We are sons of God and we also can address God as Abba, Father, the same as Jesus did. Why does this matter? Well, when we are told that we are children of God, we probably imagine that, at least compared to Jesus, we are like second-class children, like stepchildren in all the, in all the children's fairy tales. Or, or, or I guess, better than that, because uh, surely God still loves us. But we imagine that we are not really treated the same as legitimate children. We might not expect too much from God. But our chapter tells us that this idea is completely wrong. It says, if you are a child of God, you are a real child of God. You are adopted as a, as a true child of God, and you receive full rights as sons. And the first right you have as a child of God is, is access to God. If you have a father who, who loves you, you can go to him at any time and, and tell him anything that is wrong or any trouble that you have, or anything exciting that you did, and he will listen to you, and he will help you. And if that's true of human fathers, that is most certainly true of God. We are beloved sons of God, as Jesus is God's beloved son. We can call God Abba, Father, in our time of greatest need, as Jesus called God Abba, Father. And we can rest assured that we will most certainly be heard by God as Jesus was heard by God. And so the next benefit that we have from being children of God is confidence. In verse 16, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And when we truly think about the fact that we are children of God, that that we are adopted brothers of Jesus, who was God's natural son from eternity, we hardly dare believe it. Can it really be true that I could be God's beloved child? That God would hear my prayers as willingly as he heard Jesus' prayer in in Gethsemane? Surely that's not true. And so the Spirit, says our chapter, testifies with our spirit. He instills that confidence in our hearts. What we wouldn't dare to believe on our own, he gives us. And so when we pray, we can confidently expect that God will hear us. Not because we're, we're proud to think, oh, I'm so great, of course God will hear me. Not because we're foolish to just blindly trust. But because the Spirit has taught us that we are true children of God and that we are beloved by God. God loves us and hears us and helps us as a great father. 
But the greatest of all privileges that we have is taught in the next verse, verse 17. You might have wondered why we keep using in this sermon and in this scripture text the word sons. We don't speak always of children of God or sons and daughters of God. And it's certainly not wrong to call ourselves children of God. You can, you can see in our text that it switches between saying sons of God and, and children of God. But in Jewish and especially in, in Roman society that the apostle was writing to, it was males, it was sons who inherited their father's property. And that's why verse 14 starts by telling us that we are not children, but specifically sons of God. Because the greatest proof that we really are true sons of God, true proper brothers of Jesus, is what verse 17 says. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So we get to inherit. So we are sons of God. Whether we're male or female, we are all inheritors. And and what do we inherit? Verse 17 tells us. We inherit Christ's glory. It says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And answer 18 and following tells us what that glory is all about. It is the complete renewal of all things. And so we are not the adopted children of anyone. We are the adopted sons of the king of heaven and earth. And so if you're the adopted sons of the king, you receive the kingdom. You receive everything. Everything is going to be renewed and we are going to reign as kings on a new heaven and a new earth that is healed and perfect and wonderful. And that's a wonderful comfort. Because there are many times in life where it feels like that we are so far from that reality. Many times in life we don't probably feel like that we are sons of a king. And that we are in line to inherit all things. And so the the verses 18 and following are very realistic about what life is like now. The creation itself is, is messed up. Things are going wrong all of the time. And that includes us, most especially us. We suffer. We groan in in great pangs of suffering. It talks about how we groan as if in birth pains. That's how bad our suffering is. But even if that's what life is like now, our chapter comforts us by saying that the truth is, though, we are sons, we are children of God. Glory is coming also for us. We will have to suffer as Christ had to suffer, but we will be glorified. We know this because Christ was glorified. And so creation is going to be renewed, including us. And so verse 23 says, not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so like all of creation, we too will one day be renewed fixed, made perfect. The, the remnants of the flesh, the sinful nature that still remains in us. We talked about that earlier this afternoon. We have those indwelling sins that we hate and yet we come back to over and over again. One day that will all be gone and we will be perfected. 
And so we eagerly and patiently hope for this, says verse 25. Hope means that we can't see it. The reality is is not here. But yet, we believe it. But you might still wonder, well, how, how, how can I know that it's true? It all sounds very wonderful. It sounds very nice to, that in, the, in all of the suffering of this life, we can just hang on and, and wait for something good to happen. But how can we be so sure when everything is so far from perfect in this life and everything in my life is such a mess right now, it's hard to believe that perfection is coming. How do we know? Well, Romans 8 verse 29 tells us, when it speaks of Jesus as our older brother, it says that he is the firstborn among many brothers. It says, look to, look to Jesus. He has gone before us. And we hear about this idea of Jesus as the firstborn also at the beginning of our worship service from Revelation 1 verse 4. It says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So it says Jesus rose from the dead first. He died before us. He had the same mortal human body that we had. He died and then he rose again in a glorious resurrection with a glorious body. And that is the guarantee that we will rise with our mortal bodies and we will receive the same glorious human body. And younger siblings, boys and girls, perhaps you know this. Younger, if you have younger siblings, they're always trying to copy you, right? They're always trying to do the same things that you do. If he can do it, so can I. And sometimes as older siblings, as we said earlier, it's, a, it's annoying having your younger brothers always trying to copy you and follow along with what you're doing. But we all want to be like our older brother. Well, Jesus says, our, says God's word is, is our brother and we will copy him as he rose so will we so will we but we actually don't have to wait until the resurrection verse 29 tells us that we already copy Jesus now it says those whom God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers Starting from the moment you believe when the Holy Spirit was working in you, God has been making you more and more like Christ through His Holy Spirit. And if you ever reread this chapter again, notice each time we, the chapter talks about our adoption as, as sons, it's talking about the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who is making our adoption real. And it's not just... He doesn't just say, wait for the future for your adoption to, to begin and for the benefits to begin. It's already now. Through the Holy Spirit, God is making us more and more like Christ, more and more like our older brother. Younger siblings. We are, we are younger siblings and we want to be more like our older siblings. And Christ, unlike human older brothers, never resents for a moment that we are trying to copy him and be more like him. He wants us to be more like him. That's why he came. That's why he died for us. And that's why he sent us his spirit to work in our hearts and make us slowly but surely more like him. And so being more like Christ is not something that will happen at some point in the future. It is for all of us and it is beginning already now. And this all, says verse 29, was written in God's plan before the world began. 
He had already predestined you. He had already known you beforehand, and so he will certainly conform you to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. And so it is our greatest joy in life to be more like Jesus, our beloved older brother, our example, our Savior, and our Lord. And so in that truth, knowing that already now we are more like Christ, we can live in hope, as verse 30 teaches. We do not already now have that that glorious body that Christ has. We have to wait for it. And we have to wait through some great suffering when it feels like that glorious body is so far off as we groan and suffer in this life. But verse 30 says that if you are, if you have the Holy Spirit working in your hearts, God will certainly lead you to that point. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so the doctrine of our adoption as sons is one of the most glorious teachings of the Bible. It's so unexpected given where we started. We started as slaves to sin, slaves to our sinful nature. We started off, in fact, as enemies of God. And yet, God was full of such great love that he, even though we were his enemies, he sent Christ to die for us. And our adoption as sons is also so absolute. We are not just second-class citizens. We are given access to God himself through prayer by the Spirit to cry, Abba, Father. And we have assurance that we are God's children and we have the beginnings of eternal life already now as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. And so we have hope and confidence knowing that one day we will fully share in Christ's glory receiving a resurrected and glorified body, reigning with him as kings over a new creation. And so let us rejoice as we begin sharing in his righteousness now as we are conformed more and more to the likeness of our beloved older brother, Jesus Christ. Amen.